0: Welcome to the Sober is Dope podcast. I'm your host, Pop Buchanan, and today we have our in-house drug expert extraordinaire, Macaulay Sexton. He, this is his second time on the Sober is Dope. He will be our in-house guy going forward for. The multiple people in the recovery community that join Sober's Dope Space that really want someone to emphasize drug use, drug misuse, and recovery, and early recovery, and everything drug-related. This is a guy I trust. He has a lot of integrity. He grows with the science, and he's he's all over the place. You may remember him from our episode, um, Pharmaceutical Abuse, where he really went in on benzodiazepines and, and different type of drugs and how they have an effect on the body. Today, we want to expand. There's been a lot of changes in the space so we're here to ask him a bunch of questions and get caught up macaulay how you feeling today brother what's up bro i'm feeling good i'm feeling good i'm glad to be talking to you bro all right well look this is what i want to start off by asking i have 10 powerful questions but the first one off the top is since we last spoke right and for you know you was you had a different paradigm about um addiction recovery drugs and everything and since then science changed fentanyl has hit we got this thing trank on the streets you've been working with a lot of people what has changed in you and your outlook on how you look at the whole industry and addiction and recovery since then let's start there what's changed
1: all right i love this question this, this is straight up exciting bro like <laughs> this is i love to talk about this stuff so basically i had many epiphanies like I've had a bunch of shifts and changes throughout this process. And in the past three years, it's been drastic to where I completely reevaluated the way that I advocate, like straight up, dude, like a full blown shift, almost like an awakening of, of sorts to where I realized that the way that I was advocating was ultimately through the lens of stigma and my own subjective experience. And that bias was fucking up my ability to advocate for the majority because i found that when we look at stats they're stacked against us they, like the stats aren't good we can defy those stats we don't have to be another statistic so i got to be clear on that like that's you know that's my true belief but i just i realized that as a person in long term recovery i had a huge responsibility to be informed on the various things that were available. And I was just seeing it through just the same lens that I always had. And it wasn't that I was being mean or malicious or like willingly judgmental. I just realized that we were in a extreme crisis, like you mentioned, like, you know, we're in an extreme crisis. And how am I positively impacting the community as a whole. And so I started looking at the words I was saying, I I transitioned into person first language, like saying substance use disorder instead of addiction, saying alcohol use disorder instead of alcoholism. A lot of these things are kind of rooted in pseudoscience. And I noticed that I just, I wanted to be a little bit more mindful. Now this isn't a jab at anyone using these labels or words because this is all subjective. So everyone has the right to self-label, to speak really any way they want to, but this is just my personal journey to where I just, I reevaluated everything. I got out of some of the kind of victim blamey stuff that I learned in early recovery and balanced that with accountability. So for me, it's about you take accountability for, for your life, but you also, you don't take accountability for things that you have no control over. And for me, I realized that I had a lot of trauma in getting into recovery and going through treatment even. And I was kind of invalidating that. And I had this mentality of, nah, bro, I'm just going to like, I'm so going so hard with all this recovery stuff. And that discipline is great, but it became rigidity for me. And so I had to pull back and be like, yo, like, how is this affecting me? And how is this affecting everyone else? So the game has changed completely for me. Uh, you know, my I wasn't really even fully into harm reduction when we talked. I was like looking into it. Now I'm like a harm reduction provider. Like I give out naloxone and test strips. You know, I have a collaboration with End Overdose, which is an awesome nonprofit in Cali. So like, bro, it's just, it's just changed drastically. So that's why I was really excited to talk to you because like I'll say this shit to anyone who will listen. And again, like, you know, this isn't about policing people and telling them that they're wrong and they need to stop saying certain words. This is more about my individual journey. You know,
0: I love that. I love that. Wow. It's powerful. Harm reduction. I'm always been a supporter. We have a really um a uh, bunch of people in the Sober's Dope community that was big um, harm, um, harm reductionists I guess that's right um, yeah. That like um, Jen Elizabeth she's big you know she was telling me pop you know it's one thing to do podcasts and it's one thing but it's another thing to be on the ground and actually bringing care packages to people and actually helping people out on the ground and going out there and taking care of people on the street that's really hurting um, also shout out to Jen Elizabeth who's big and also so Soldiers for Recovery, Suleiman Hassan, who's on the ground every day. These guys, is they're out there. She's, I think, in Cali. He be in Kensington, um, Kensington PA. I know you, you saw the videos about Kensington, Pennsylvania, right? Where they yeah. have that whole place where their um, addicts are allowed to go and just take refuge and just use. So it's like, it's almost like this little... Um, Six Flags Great Adventure looking place Where it's just everyone using I mean for lack of a better But um, at this you know, It's heartbreaking every time someone sees that It's heartbreaking because now you're seeing 300 to 400 people Together really struggling with addiction So um, Harm reduction for me I think I had to Really Soften myself up Because I, I understand it like the first time I encountered it was one of my friends was um, getting off of heroin. And she was like, I'm smoking weed and I'm using um, mushrooms and plant based medicines to get off of that. And I was like, What? I mean, at that point, weed to me was like the hero. I'm like, Yo, by all means, do all the weed in the world you want. If it, if it means you're getting off of heroin and all of this hard stuff. Because, I mean, not too many people really had to deal with someone they love up close. They were like on heroin, trying to, like that's yeah. hard to that's hard to eat. So what's your take on uh, overall? I mean, first, could you break down harm reduction as you know it to be yeah. because everyone is different? And what's your take on the harm reduction space? So
1: basically, I had to completely I don't wanna say re-educate, but kind of. I kind of had to deprogram from a lot of the the stuff that's out there as far as the public perception of harm reduction. I also had to kind of distinguish that, like people, in my opinion, people utilizing cannabis or psychedelics, you know, in their recovery, you can label that as harm reduction, but ultimately it's just recovery. So like,
0: Mm, um, um, that's,
1: that's a clear thing that I've learned in the past three years is that a lot of times people do feel invalidated when you're only labeling it as harm reduction. And that's not something that I'm saying you're doing at all, bro. But uh, that was something that I became aware of through people articulating it. And I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, like for instance, things like medication assisted treatment, like Suboxone or methadone, I just viewed that as harm reduction when in reality for people who are like working at their recovery and they are actively recovering and gaining the things they lost, that's straight-up recovery. You know That's what I mean? straight-up yes, recovery. It can be reducing harm. And I have my own biases towards things like methadone. You know, I had a very bad experience with it. But I, a lot of harm reduction for me is kind of checking myself. And because we can get real fired up. Like, you know what it's like. We, we want to defend people who are suffering. And we want to try to reduce suffering. But the thing is, is a lot of this is totally subjective. And so it's like, for me, harm reduction is a philosophy. It's not just the practice that of, of action, but it's a way of thinking that I embody in my own life as it relates to consumption of anything. So it's not just substances. For me, you know, I cut out substances and now my harm reduction is around food and drinking water and getting sleep and how I talk to myself. But that's like That's getting too deep with it. Not as deep. That's good. What I perceive harm reduction as, again, it's a philosophy. There are tenets of harm reduction. It's around autonomy and respecting someone as they are. It's about not devaluing someone because they actively use substances. And it's also about not only validating someone if they are seeking recovery. So it's really like you're validating human life. And it's not with the main emphasis on them even potentially getting into recovery if that's not something that they, that they want. And that for me was hard to accept because I perceive recovery as the, the best reprieve that anyone could get who's using substances. But then I was lumping in all substance users into the umbrella of substance use disorder, which honestly is not. Accurate. When you look at statistics and people who actually get substance use disorder, it's not as much as you would actually think. There are some claims that it's about, I think, 10 to 15% of people who use substances actually get substance use disorder. Don't quote me on that. That's literally hearsay. I've heard people say this. And so I, I don't think that's like, you know, a solid stat. But according to, you know, what I'm hearing people say that are actively using and stuff, There just needs to be an emphasis on valuing your like valuing life regardless of if someone's seeking recovery or not and keeping them alive long enough to where if they want to seek recovery they can survive to even do that you know so it's uh it's perceived as enabling uh you know that just to address the fucking elephant in the room that is what the general public really sees harm reduction as and the truth of the matter is is that no one's going out and shooting up for the first time because they can get a clean needle you know no one's like it doesn't make that shit sound appealing like most people are terrified of needles when it comes to that we're also you know harm reduction nonprofits are giving out needles to people that need to use insulin so even the argument that well what about people that you know what about free insulin and shit it's like Well, if you really looked into it, harm reduction agencies are actually helping those people by giving them, you know, the needles that you use to administer insulin. So, you know, the thing is, is I I get it. I understand the judgment. I understand that. And I had some of that, bro. Like I had to check it and like, where are we at? The whole game has changed, bro. The whole game game has
0: changed. changed.
1: People are, everyone's dying now. And so it's like... I'm, I'm in full support of safe supply at this point, which I was against. Like, I was like, nah, no way. Like, I think they need to prescribe opioids again. I think that, you know. What All was right, right. let's to-
0: get there. Let's stop yeah. there for a minute. This is deep. All right. So you're going into a lot of good areas. I want to, before we get into the opioid thing, because that's yeah. something that's been coming up. I've been hearing doctors talking about it. It's, a, it's yeah. just there's a camp on both sides. Um, there's a camp with the harm reduction. So every day I'm learning also right with being on Instagram and stuff so I posted something about harm reduction and this guy hit me in the inbox and was like you don't understand how dangerous it is and how ugly it is and he started sending me all these videos and all of this stuff and it was kind of in the spirit of it's wrong they're enabling all of these people to use like they're bringing all of these needles they're bringing all of this stuff they're giving people all of this stuff and it's it's um proliferating the whole pandemic of drugs and making it more prevalent out there is that true is that a true assessment for people who feel like every the given addicts or people who are dependent chemically dependent and drug dependent all of these utensils is it helping or is it hurting
1: it's 100%, it's reducing bloodborne illnesses. It is reducing OD deaths. Like when we look at safe use sites, no one dies at a safe use site, bro. Okay. <laughs> then no one dies there. There's people who are trained. You know, there's a lot of times like off duty EMS people who are also in recovery or who are just advocates. Like no one passes away in those spaces. When it comes to distributing needles, it reduces bloodborne illnesses. Like, Look, the thing is, is like, I understand that way of thinking that way of thinking is also tied to the war on drugs and the people who are perpetuating that way of thinking are thus perpetuating the war on drugs and continued prohibition, which is fueling The current opioid epidemic, because of prohibition, the manufacturers of these substances are navigating and creating different analogs, which are stronger. And so the more we prohibit this, the more we police this, the more that we shame and don't provide the resources to reduce harm, it will get worse. That's basically like the way that I put it is that we lost the war on drugs and us as the United States are like on the ground trying to like bite the ankle of drugs like ah nah right. dude we're not gonna give up and they're like getting stomped getting stomped out and right. stomped out getting right. hit with the butt of the rifle and we're just like nah And and so really look that perception that it's like promoting more or it's like creating more no it's bringing things to light like you can see it when it's in this space you can you're aware of it instead of kind of you know put pushing it into the closet and kind of just trying to, to keep keep it moving and not really acknowledge what's going on but this is all evidence-based like when you look at other countries that have implemented harm reduction you know and just an emphasis on like prioritizing human life, people start to do better. So the the main issue here, I won't get too, like, I'm obviously really into this stuff, but I won't go too far. I'll just say the main issue is Our cultural understanding of substance use disorder and that stigma related to it that further isolates the person that's experiencing this and that basically vilifies them while simultaneously devaluing their life and dehumanizing them, which contributes to a decline in mental health and self worth. And that's where we see behavioral issues and things that we associate with being an addict, when in reality, those are just associated with being a, basically a devalued person in society that is, has a maladapted coping skill. That's really a lack of coping skills. So a lot of this has to do with just the public misunderstanding of what substance use disorder is. And that somehow by keeping people alive, they have a problem with that. There's a lot of people that have a problem with that. They want they want people with substance use disorder to die oh, straight wow. up. And, and 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 that's bro, like I've been, you know, into this for a while now and I'm not just making that claim. This is a real thing. People mention natural selection all the time. They say we need to just get rid of all the junkies. So this is a real like people would be okay with a straight up genocide basically of people with substance use disorder there are people who would be completely fine with that so that is also that stresses the importance of harm reduction because we have a large majority i don't want to say that that's too generalized but we we have people within the united states that actively want people with substance use disorder to die and are okay that's,
0: with that That's sad, man And that's, that's horrifying to think So my thing with the opioid crisis And them It's a prohibition on opioids right now, right? That's what yeah. kind of how you framed it That's a beautiful way to frame it There's people who make the argument That this whole drug war And pandemic And fentanyl crisis And all of this stuff we're dealing with Started in the, um, the opioid crisis With doctors prescribing These highly addictive pills The Sackley family And all of this stuff And now if we reinstate opioid use with that how would that help the situation and could you just give us your overview on that whole opioid crisis now versus how you were two years ago when you was on so though what changed there and what would you like to see
1: all right so everything has changed i am i was a person spreading this rhetoric that opioids need to be basically like not on the market anymore. Uh, I do think that opioids are not effective long-term treatment for chronic pain, but that's for me in my life. I can't dictate that for everyone. That that, that would just be extremely biased and messed up. So I had to check that and I had to actually do some research and figure out where we're at. And I found that basically, look, the Sackler family and their practices were unethical. Uh, Curtis Wright at the FDA unethical. The overprescription, the manipulation of doctors, unethical, and the it, it caused a problem. So that that's objective truth is that the the way that they prescribed them, it changed the standard in which we view pain as people in the United States to where we're we're associating moderate pain with opioid prescriptions or opiate either or. And so that is, that is the issue is that because they were over-prescribed, people associated things that would not normally, you know, that opiates wouldn't normally be applied to with being prescribed opiates. And so that created a emphasis and a, a kind of a obsession for some people with the feeling of pain. And, and so, the truth is, is pain is a normal part of life. Now, if it's to the point that you can't function and you're in complete suffering and misery, there should be something that could reduce that. So that's my take when it comes to the Sackler family. Like they were unethical, they were messed up. The thing is, is that if those meds are implemented in a ethical way, they're effective. There are people with cancer who take Oxy, they're, you know, they're able to take it. Now, like, yeah, there are issues that come up with that, but Let me go to the next thing. Let me segue to the next thing. So we got the Sackler family. We got the overprescription. We got that. Okay, now it was, then it was pulled back. So that's like you give someone oxy and then say, here, try a Tylenol after that. What is someone going to think? This isn't effective. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? It's a matter of perspective. You, you know, you give someone something really strong and then give someone something that's really weak it's you know they're going to be like this doesn't work for me you know and 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 that's up for them to decide ultimately but so basically the, they pulled back so much so that doctors started being hyper focused on the possibility of someone basically getting opiate use disorder or opiate addiction. So, okay. dependency is like if you take opioids every day consistently for for you know, I think it's like 2 weeks or more uh or maybe even a week, I'm not sure on the, on the numbers of that, but uh you become dependent. So, but the thing is, is there's a big difference between dependency and addiction. Dependency as it relates to physical dependency is tolerance and potential withdrawal. Now, then when we look at substance use disorder or opiate use disorder, that's the use of opioids or opiates despite negative consequences. So, There can be plenty of people out there that are actually being lumped into the opiate use disorder category that are just dependent. So we're not really fluent as a a society when it comes to the real definitions of these words. And so people who are just opioid dependent are lumped in. And this is this is a a clear discrepancy. So you pull back the meds and now, yes, some people are going to go to the streets. They're going to try to buy these things. But now it's like a standard. Doctors are scared to prescribe these medications. And so simultaneously, we also had, you know, fentanyl come out carfentanil, these analogs, these nitazines, xylazine you know, uh, analog of clonidine, which is not an opioid. And so these things all came out, you know, during this pullback. So basically, people are dying, just in mass quantities, I think it's up to like 200 people a day in the United States, because there is no access to opioids. So Do I think that, again, I think opioids are not effective for me long-term. I think that they kind of perpetuate pain. But the thing is, is like, I had to set that bias aside and kind of, again, check myself and check my ego and just be like, hey dude, What's happening right now? You weren't using during that time. You're not using during this time. You stopped using in 2014 when fentanyl was just becoming a thing, really. So you you weren't even in that shit. So how are you gonna dictate what what's right and what's wrong? So basically, You know the the prohibition currently like to get to the your your question specifically prohibition is fueling the epidemic at this point and Mm -hmm. we see this with rhetoric and propaganda like the idea that fentanyl can kill you by touching it which is a complete fallacy it is not that is not a thing it is disproven by by toxicologists and by scientists you know this this demonizing of fentanyl to the point that it's causing mass hysteria which it's that enough as is, bro. It's terrible. It's it's really sketchy. It's like super strong. So we see people passing away from very large, am- I mean, very small amounts of it. So fentanyl is scary as is. And so it's not just you know the pullback of the prescriptions. It's also the rhetoric and the ideas that no one is willingly taking it. That it's just accidental in my opinion, the idea that it's a weapon of mass destruction. So then we're tying into the war on drugs. So stay with me here. So now we're labeling it as a weapon of mass destruction. We're simultaneously prohibiting opioids. And what this does is it further demonizes it, which it's like I said, it's bad enough as is. I'm not advocating for fentanyl. It's fucking it's like it's rough. But what what that what happens when you do that is you you create more drug policies that are harming people that are you know basically putting people into prison and contributing to you know to that complex and everyone is kind of left behind to to try to pick up the pieces and do what they can but you know at this point to rein it in and just to, to try try to put a bow on it basically all of this leads to people dying so you pull back and you basically police and criminalize these different versions now there's another version now there's a stronger version that's why we see the prevalence of nidazines that's why we see the prevalence of xylazines you know those were lesser known now they're they're more common you'll see on the news bro like every month there's like a new substance that they're like, this is the new one that right. so basically, look, the, the the black market, the illicit market will continue. Uh, you know, I think even even with, you know, reduction in prohibition or the complete, you know, stopping prohibition. But the thing is, is that people will become will gain access to that. And now we have to talk about what are the implications of that. So there needs to be infrastructure to to actually set that up to where it will actually be beneficial. So what that looks like is if you're going to tax things, you use that for harm reduction and treatment resources. And we basically overhaul the whole way that we talk about this. So I'm going to shut up here, but there, it's a cultural reset that needs to happen. It's a recovery revolution, as as far as it relates to the recovery community, and we need to just talk about this in a different way, basically. And and that that is like one of my main life goals at this point is is to contribute to that and to change this the narratives that we have because they're archaic and they need to change. And we're just seeing people die. But I'm going on and on. Now. No, I love I it.
0: Um, about. quick question: If for so most of us, I guess the public's perception is that. It all stems from opioids and opiate misuse, meaning that um, if you see someone outside now doing heroin or if you see someone outside doing any type of drug and they're really messed up and they're on the street, it's usually this narrative now that, oh, the doctor prescribed them something, pulled it back, and then they hit the streets, and now they're stuck. Is that always the case that brings people there, like, at the way will it Because now it's hard to tell. That's I'm even feeding into the narrative, so I'm curious because- yeah. That's where the compassion comes from. Hey, it was someone's grandmom. It was, she was just a regular teacher. It was a regular normal person, right? Like as if someone who else that's addicted is not a regular normal person. But the idea is that it may have been someone who never was, never drank, never did drugs a day in their life, had an injury. um, And then somehow that injury, they prescribed them opioids or opiates, and then it led them, then they pulled it back. And then it got them dependent and then they hit the streets to find something stronger, usually resulting in overdose and stuff like that. So we have the overdose problem, which a lot of my friends and our friends in the recovery community, are. We, they have family members who unfortunately die, who is normal kids in high school. Maybe, you know, uh, a, a football game or something, a shattered ankle led them into opioid misuse and then getting stuck. What's the narrative? What's what's some of the non-traditional ways people wind up on the streets versus just opioid um being prescribed these opiates and what what can we say to people that's overdosing and family members who are victims of family who died due to opioids and stuff like that? So,
1: you know, that's a thing. There are people who are prescribed opioids and then they end up buying things from the illicit market because they don't have access. You know, that is something that I experienced. I I was prescribed opioids after being hit by a car and, you know, I was going and trying to get them very consistently and then doctors were able to see through that. So a lot of this does have to do with the communication with doctors. So there are people who are legitimate, you know, I don't want to just label it as legitimate, but there are people who could actually utilize pain meds without issue. Well, you know, without, without opiate use disorder, a dependency, but not opiate use disorder, which is very different. The thing is, is that, you know, doctors are now trained to, to look at drug seeking to the degree that it is, it is causing people to feel isolated and unsupported and unheard. And then they do go to the streets. Now, this brings up a really important topic is that there needs to be you know pain advocates or what they label themselves as legacy pain patients that teach people with legitimate chronic pain how to talk to doctors so mm. that's that's the first thing is that if you go into a doctor and you're like I need some percocet they're going to be like yo are you joking <laughs> me right. bro? You kidding me oh, no nah, I'm not going to give you percocet right. so there is a lot of that okay so that's that's relevant but when it comes to like you know people who are you know in a position to where they're unhoused or they are you know they're overdosing you know consistently or whatever like there are so many different scenarios there there are people now who who go into using you know pressed thin pills basically as like some of the first things that they're even experimenting with. So there are people who do that. There are people who, you know, are already maybe opioid dependent or maybe they have opioid use disorder and then they get a, you know, a blue or an M30 or an inbox and they just realize that it's more cost effective and that it's stronger and more potent. So that speaks to what I was saying earlier is that the way that we're talking about this generally as generally as the society is that this is just accidental. This is, there's, pe- there's only, you know, that is a thing. Yes. There are people who are, think they think they're taking, you know, a Molly or they think they're taking a, a rather oppressed X pill and, you know, they have fence or, you know, any of these other powders and pills like that's happening. But the thing is, is like, there are a lot of people who, you know, are just in that culture and that subculture of substance use And, you know, it's very joked about and kind of, you know, laughed off even like the the idea of taking a a, a perk, a fake perk. And, you know, we see it in within, you know, just a lot of different communities. We see it within our culture, our music, as you know, bro. Like, you know, literally we had the TikTok, you know, song. I just popped a perk tin. I just popped a perk, you know, it's like, and, and people are dancing to it and shit. And I'm not, I'm honestly not mad at that. I don't really, it's just... It, it doesn't give a good vibe to me. Yeah. Uh, the point being is that when people get to that position, there's unique stories for everyone. So I'm not going to put the blanket statement that, oh, it's just only people do, who were, who had scripts. But as you mentioned, this is really relevant because it actually can help kind of bring people in who are only valuing so-called normal people. So. Yeah, right. You know it's like okay, if you want to you know bring up the grandma or, or the nurse or whatever right, someone right. that we actually value yeah. in order to spread light on this, then that's great. All right. now to answer your question about what I say to family members of people who've lost loved ones to to fentanyl or to other opioids, synthetic opioids or analogs, what's happening now is a lot of those people are are being kind of taken advantage of by institutions and by law enforcement and by the DEA and by and they're basically being their their grief is being taken advantage of and their the information that they're getting is based on continued prohibition it's based on continuing to to police it's based on sending people to prison for murder if they sell fentanyl so i look like we, we may disagree on this one bro but i don't think that's serving anyone i think that again there are people who do not know they're delivering fentanyl. They are not aware of that. They have a batch that they don't know what's in it. And so now it's just further filling our prisons, which I don't think is effective personally. I think when we look at privatized prison systems, you know, or just prisons in general, like, you know, basically using people for free labor and just the you know, the perpetuation of, of all of these these just ways of thinking and practices. I'm not, I'm, I'm just, I'm not with that. I'm not with that. I, I don't agree with it. I think that, you know, I'm not gonna sit here and be condescending to someone who lost a loved one or who, you know, their loved one got maybe murdered or something and they feel that the person who did that needs to go to prison. Like that's not what I'm, I'm not, you know I'm not really speaking to that. I'm just speaking in the context of what is now happening is again, people are, they're, they're kind of being drawn in to a lot of these propaganda campaigns, and it is perpetuating the problem to where we see the you know the rhetoric that it is a weapon of mass destruction and that it's just China trying to kill everyone in the US and, and that it's just the cartels in Mexico. And what does that sound like? It sounds kind of like when we heard weapon of mass destruction the last time. It right. does. It, you know what I'm saying? It sounds a lot like Like that. an agenda.
0: It's a political it's, it's, agenda. It's an
1: agenda. It is an agenda. And, and so I go the other way. Everyone's like, it's a conspiracy to kill everyone. Da, 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 da. I'm like, bro, this is supply and demand, bro. This is supply and demand. People are seeking it out. Anyone out there who is actively seeking opioids right now, for the most part is seeking out fentanyl so wow so and that is according to you know i'm collaborating with a treatment center i talk to people that work in detox the majority of people coming in are they have fence in their system and a lot of which are also not feeling comfortable to even admit that because of the stigma so even when we look at uh you know the the parents that are saying oh my kid never did drugs it's like you don't, you don't necessarily know that. I'm sorry. You really don't. Like, if, especially if you're fostering this kind of just say no type shit with your kids. You think they're going to come to you and be like, yo. And a lot of this sounds very, like, insensitive. And I'm not trying to come off as that. Yeah. I'm just defensive of the people that are still alive. And and again, that, oh, that even sounds insensitive. But I have nothing but compassion for anyone who's lost anyone in their life, no matter how that has happened. The thing is is that we need to advocate for the people that are here and that are that are actively using and by further, you know, stigmatizing this shit and making people want to hide it and just using these narratives, it's it's just going to perpetuate the problem more. So, I have nothing but compassion, but I encourage people who have lost someone to look into harm reduction specifically look into harm reduction and to look into recovery for yourself not from substance use disorder necessarily but from the trauma that you've endured because that is a legitimate trauma and you deserve healing and peace and reprieve and you know you deserve closure but it's not going to help to get this vendetta and try to send people who potentially sold someone a substance to prison for the rest of their life you know especially if they unknowingly did that so i'm real this, this is a controversial take bro but
0: i'm no, very I passionate respect about it. it
1: and you know i'm not going to a disclaimer i'm not trying to fucking dictate the way that you need to grieve you can be angry you could want to give you know you could have a vendetta and i'm you're that's fine i'm just saying there's a lot more to this it's
0: right a and, and i love it so that brings me here um you mentioned uh harm reduction versus recovery or harm reduction being for a form of recovery or just being recovery right how can parents and family members better uh address the issue with their kids um, Instead of just having a say no campaign, what's the new language that they could use to open, to foster kind of like open communication. So where yeah. if a kid is actually using, they feel comfortable with speaking to their parents about it. That's the first part of the question. And the yeah. second part is um, if someone is trying to do harm reduction, can they go to the medical route and go to their doctor for help? Or do they have to go to the streets? Like, so first oh. part family, second part, yeah. how do we deal with harm reduction in the medical community?
1: Okay. So, the the first thing for me is using non-stigmatized language so okay. using person first language what it's called so we want to in my opinion we want to use terms like substance use disorder we want to educate on the difference between dependency and substance use disorder you know that needs to be a, a common understanding that ev- like everyone should have at this point and basically we need to frame this as we need to actually acknowledge that drugs feel good, and that 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 they have an application, and that you know it's not always that you use one time and you are homeless on the streets. Uh, that that narrative isn't. It's not working. It's not helping. So this this happened. This is tied into the culture of parenting, and this is this ties into the culture in schooling and education. We learn really quick. I don't know about you, but I learned pretty quick that adults are bullshitting a lot of the time and they don't know what what they're talking about Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. Okay, kids are smart. They're not stupid. Like they, you know, a lot of them are very intuitive and can read energies. And and, you know, depending on where you come from, there's other things that can come into play to where we have to just adjust accordingly, depending on our surroundings. So, right. This starts on a cultural level to where at school we're, we're basically given these horror stories and stuff. Now, I'm not saying we don't share about the adverse consequences and stuff. It just needs to be balanced. It needs to be balanced. And I mean, I'll go a little bit deeper really quick and just say that the way that we, re- we reduce adolescent problem use and drinking is by creating a, a space, creating a, a society... That's based on prioritizing human life and and that isn't so dehumanizing and overstimulating, which that sounds like a really big overhaul, but that's totally possible. It totally is. It, it would take really, we could do it in, in under a decade if we if we really put our mind, what does that look like? It, it looks like, you know, changing the education system. I'm not going to go like, I'm going to go off on a tangent, so I'll stop. But it looks like changing things on a cultural level, right. basically. Okay. And so when it comes to the parent communicating, it just needs to be a non BS approach. And it needs to be based on transparency and honesty, as opposed to authoritarianism. Kids don't like authoritarianism. They don't like authority. Most of them, maybe some do, but I don't know about you, right? I hated that. I was like, uh-uh, nah, and you're probably you probably don't know what you're talking about if you're trying to tell me some something like this. So it, it has to do with the words we use so we're not using these emotionally charged words with all this shit tied to it so then if the kid ends up having substance use disorder they don't want to say shit because i don't want to be an addict i don't want to be associated with with that right. so see what i'm saying like it, it has to do with being tactful and understanding and just like a little bit more moderate. I'm sorry, like moderate is a good word. Like you're moderate with your delivery. You're acknowledging, Hey, this is the risk of this. Hey, this is the application of this. This is what it is. And when you do that, kids aren't as likely to like hide and do this behind the back thing or this, this sneaky thing, because it's like, it's out in the open, you know what I mean? And look, regardless of what you say as a parent, The cultural, the way that we address these things culturally will basically like cancel a lot of that out. So you could be the most understanding parent in the world who is just super like non stigmatized, like just cool, understanding, tactful. But then when you go into school, now you're being programmed by a whole set of authority figures that can completely just kind of ruin that so like that is what i found with like cannabis growing up in a hippie family i was like oh this is just normal this is just what people do and then i go to school and i you know make a joke about it and i get in a bunch of trouble and they're like you know what i'm saying so it's like i wish it was just as simple that's just you know I, I would say don't don't take your don't send your kids to public school like you know what I mean yeah. like and that that's that's even deeper that's a whole other story but uh, what was your second question I'm sorry the like, second one
0: cool. was like all right so I want to give everyone a scenario I have a friend of mine who came to me and I think I spoke to you about that so I want to frame this for anyone that's kind of using in secrecy yeah. whether it's percocets or opioids or pills or whatever it is. Yeah. Right So she contacted me And she says Hey you know Pop um, I'm checking out Sobers dope I've been using Percocets For three years And I don't like The way I feel And I I want to get off of them So um, I figured it was illicit Right She probably got them She didn't get them From a doctor So she's finding Some creative ways To get these things On a consistent basis And the question was Well what do I do How do I de- How do I get How Where do I start She said I have no idea Where to start so the first thing i wanted to you know i I wanted to ask you is where does someone start that's kind of like doing this you having these problems in secrecy she never told anyone in her whole life she has a kid a regular family a job and everything and pop was the first person she spoke to about it and then i came to you because i wanted to be responsible and give us some really good information where do we start with that for someone that's dealing with um any type of drug use and secrecy and how do they detox and um get off of it so we're talking about um is it a harm reduction thing or like how do they do it
1: yeah okay so i remember what you said now i'm sorry i got sidetracked so i want to just quickly answer that and then I'll go into this. So when it comes to like how is someone implementing harm reduction are they just going to the streets and buying stuff? Uh, So if you're buying things on the, the illicit supply you're testing them with test strips with fentanyl test strips and you're making sure that someone around you is first of all you're not using alone ever. You never use alone no matter what and if the other person is with you they need to be conscious so that they can administer naloxone. So you need to have naloxone around you that someone else can administer and you need to test things with test strips if you're trying to avoid fentanyl now the blunt truth is some people want fentanyl so they may test it to make sure it is fentanyl and that's I have no jab at that but that's right. just the, that's where we're at right now right. Uh, but if, if you're in that scenario and you're actually seeking out fentanyl just Again, do, do not use alone. And someone needs to know when you are actively administering. If you are, you know, administering intravenously, someone needs to know and someone needs to have access to you immediately with naloxone. Now, if you're, you know, that that is harm reduction. That is a way to reduce harm by testing and by having naloxone and by people understanding how to administer it. Now, if you're getting from, you know, a doctor, Again, that's that's harm reduction. You could be someone who is using, you know, methamphetamine, and you are now prescribed, uh, you know, an ADHD medication, and and that is one hundred percent harm reduction. You're not, wor- you know, you don't have to worry about, you know, the supply being tainted or anything. So those are the two within, you know, the non illicit space, the prescription space, and the illicit space. You just okay. want to have. All of those things available. Uh, if you're shooting up, you need to have clean needles. You know, if you're if you're sorting things, you need to have separate straws. You don't share straws with people. You know, uh, you know if you're you need to use good clean water. There's people that there's harm reduction agencies that provide uh, saline. So you have you know everything that you need for that. Uh, there's people who supply syringes that don't have needles for people who want to uh, boof things like administer them rectally, uh, which is harm reduction as opposed to using intravenously. So, right. and this this just sounds wild. Like when you say right. this to the average person, they're like, "What, bro?" Like, yeah, we came a long you way. boof things. No, I'm just saying there there is a harm reduction solution to any of those things. Now, when it comes to, like, let's say that you've used in secrecy, you're dependent on something that you bought, you know, from the illicit supply, and this is now not sustainable for you, you know, what do you, what do you do? Well, what you do in most, excuse me, in most cases is you would go to an addiction medicine doctor, AKA a addictionologist and an addictionologist that practices addiction medicine. So they're gonna understand and they're not gonna come from a stigma-based approach. Now, if you go to like a normal doctor and you're like, hey, I've been taking fake perks, hook me up with some real perks, they're gonna be like, yo, no. Like, you know, it's the same kind of deal to where it's like, you gotta get in where you can. And 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 the people, the doctors and practitioners that are, you know. Uh, associated with uh addiction medicine are going to be more likely to give you basically medication assisted treatment so that's going to be things like suboxone methadone Sublocade, which is a, a shock um and then there are things like naltrexone um you know vivitrol and stuff like that which are more blockers than actual partial agonists. Right. So a lot of these medications are like Suboxone is a partial agonist, unless I'm mistaken, I'm pretty sure it is. And uh, basically you can go and get these prescribed from addictionologists in person. Uh, when we talked last, this was like not that long ago that we talked, like. They were changing the requirements for prescription, and they made it to where everyone, any doctor could prescribe them. They're trying to take that away now, apparently. I don't know where we're at with that. Apparently, okay. some people are pissed off at that. Regardless, there is access. There are just more barriers to entry when it comes to an in-person office visit, and depending on how much that in-person office visit costs. Right now, there are tele- telehealth options. I know that I'm, I'm going to give free promo to this place right now, but uh, <laughs> it's called a Recovery Delivered, I think. I'm not okay. associated with them at any capacity I don't know any okay. I just you know, I know that, shout, they out, that. Shout,
0: shout them out They was the suck uh, you know
1: like yeah. uh, again <laughs> recovery really,
0: yeah. recoverydelivered.com or something like pretty, that
1: I, I can't tell you if it's Google, a Google so
0: they have to Google you
1: just Google that yeah I'm not delivery. sure if they're going to be affected by any potential changes I don't think so uh, because I'm pretty sure they probably have addiction medicine doctors so that's the answer that's like viewed as the gold standard you know mm-hmm. Uh there's a lot of stigma around Suboxone and, and, and methadone and stuff. And the thing is, is like, again, it didn't work for me, but hey, that was just me. And I had to kind of check that and be like, people are dying. So let's, right. let's do some stuff to where it, it, it will actively reduce harm. Even if someone, this is just a blunt truth. Even if someone was abusing Suboxone, they are less at risk than if they were to be using big perks like that's just right. that's where we're at bro that's where right. we're at and it's like a lot Trust of people me. they don't want to kind of throw off the white flag and i get it but
0: it's like bro <laughs> yeah quick question can uh, your personal doctor if you know how to ask him refer you to an addictionologist technically yeah
1: i mean it, it, i think a lot of that has to do with like who they know you know what i mean or who's in like who they associate with who they rub shoulders with you know I, i can't really say for sure across the board i would say any like reputable i mean i don't want to like invalidate other doctors but like any doctor who is like informed is going to at least be able to have their secretary or some shit hop on google you know what i mean so what i'm like they may not have a, a a um you know a peer Right, that's in that field, but you can find addictionologists in pretty much every state. There can be kind of tricky to find because a lot of them are tied to IOPs. So a lot of them. What's IOP? So IOP is intensive outpatient. Okay. Um, And then there's PHP, which is partial hospitalization. So a lot of those, those are like uh, you know outpatient settings, and a lot of addictionologists are basically just employed by those. So it's like. They're lumped into the IOP, and so in order to gain the medication, you also have to attend IOP. In some scenarios, with with uh, um, telehealth, you don't. So you don't that's the telehealth.
0: Thing. Okay. You don't with
1: telehealth, from my understanding, because I mean it's it's online. Like, there's not a physical space to go to. Some of those may be tied to IOPs where they have that as like an option, but really for the most part, no. Like, uh, you just Google addiction medicine specialist near me. You Google addictionologists near me, and you just ask questions. What are your requirements? Do I have to go to IOP? Do I need to be fresh out of treatment? Y- you got to tell them everything that you're consuming. Like, you got to say everything. I take benzos, and I also looking. For medication assisted treatment like they need to be informed so it's each of, responsibility to be like where what am i taking what are, you know or else you yeah. find yourself in a sketchy situation to where you're like you could be at risk of having harm from the medication assisted treatment if you're abusing ketamine and benzos and, and you're like, lying these, about you
0: it like, or you're not being honest yeah
1: yeah like every all you can be taking all these central nervous system depressants and then you're, you're you have respiratory failure from right. you know so that is really relevant too you know it's not just like a band-aid it
0: needs to be like counter related right. I kind of feel like they should make it a little bit easier for people it sounds like it's still kind of difficult um just to get the health and yeah. I feel like I have to go back and talk to that young lady because she mentioned that she just made an appointment with her regular doctor and I was like you're good to go but if she, I'm probably going to have to tell her to look for, um, ma- and you know what? The first thing I said is just, why don't you just go to a outpatient, I mean, um, a detox. So they start with a detox, right? They get, they then they'll, from yeah. there, they could recommend you to IOP or something like that. But most people say, I have kids, I have a job, I can't take days off, I can't. And I always try to tell people, look, you have to prioritize your healing, all right. That's one thing I'm big on this is do dope Cash in those vacation days. Give the kids to a family member. Take a week or two to just get this right. At least get the ball rolling in the right direction. But it's harder when you are just trying to pretend to be normal because you was doing this in secrecy. So now you want yeah. to continue. You want to try to get off of it. It's tough, man. I don't know what to do, really. I'm going to tell her to contact telehealth. And what was the other place um that you mentioned? The re- the delivery, the recovery uh, delivery. I think it's called. I
1: think it's called Recovery Delivered. I'm pretty recovery sure. Recovery um,
0: Delivered. All right. And again, I'm not getting up.
1: any kickbacks for this. Shout out to them, regardless. I mean, the, I just I I heard of this one, and apparently they they do ADHD medication, um, other medications other than you know Savoxin and stuff. But uh, but yeah, no, it's it's tricky. I think you know the, Telling people to go to detox is like, the thing is, is that's the safest way to where it's like when you're trying to self implement a medication and you're like, maybe still using another one. It's like, well, how do you go about that? If you take the Suboxone too soon, you're going to go into precipitated withdrawal and you're going to feel the worst you've ever felt in your life. So oh. it's not as simple as you just you. Oh, I took a perk earlier and now I'm going to take Suboxone. nah. no. Yeah.
0: Have to like you, have to
1: wait, you have to wait a certain amount of time before you can even take it. And so you need to basically not consume it. For, I believe I, I, I can't tell you the exact hours. I, I believe it's 48 hours. Maybe it's, I could be totally wrong on that. It could be less. I, I don't remember because I, I went through this almost 10 years ago, but that's right. what they did for me is they were like, you can't take anything. I was in detox and they're like, nah, we'll give you like comfort meds for your benzo withdrawal, but we're not giving you anything for a, a, a period of time for the opioid withdrawal. And then they implement the suboxone, so because pre- precipitated withdrawal is just basically the most intense form of withdrawal you could ever experience. It's like times ten. So right. you know it, that that's where I do think detox. Like I tell everyone, detox. Right. Detox. Go to detox. Like there's even outpatient detox.
0: There's wow! I didn't know that. There we go. Yes. We getting somewhere. Outpatient detox. That's that's yeah. Big. It's not
1: as common, but it's there, bro. It's there. There's you just you got to look specifically for outpatient detox. You're gonna have medication management. You're gonna go in. You got to go in to like talk to them and stuff. But you're not like laid up in a bed there for however long. So like that's I a thing.
0: Too. <laughs> but All right. right and, 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 and and go ahead. Yeah. No, it's not, and it's not recommended just to go cold turkey without professional medical supervision or someone like just stopping it is not recommended. Okay. No,
1: because you, you look so like benzos and alcohol are the two main things that take your life because you have seizures and the complications. Opioids, they make you I was going to say it in a less eloquent way, but they give you diarrhea okay. and they make you vomit that's what they can do and so if you're vomiting and you have diarrhea you have fluid loss and you get dehydrated and that causes cardiac symptoms you can have cardiac arrest and wow. other things that and arrhythmia and all these other things that can come up so again that's not medical advice i'm just you it is not safe to the only thing that you can really do at home is cannabis really do you want to get real about it i mean you could say stimulants as well but then with stimulants you can have a drop in blood pressure you know to where uh that can be really dangerous with, with opioids or downers you have your blood pressure goes up drastically and with stimulants your blood pressure goes down so that can be Whoa. sketchy so you basically like i said the main thing is like cannabis yeah you can write it out nicotine write it out 72 hours nicotine when it comes to all these other things like fentanyl especially it's more pronounced it's more pronounced and so you can pass away the real issue is that if you have a complication and you're unsupervised that you have no one attends to you no one responds you're at home and you have a seizure you know or you're vomiting and having diarrhea to the point that you're literally dying and you're by yourself no one's no one's there to physically pick you up if you lose consciousness you can't call 911 if you're unconscious you know so it's really about that it's about understanding that you could potentially like some people do it and they they put that narrative out there like just do it at home it's like bro no, no 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 like it's not safe uh, I avoid any type of medical advice like that ever. I, I would not. People try to get it from me, bro. They're like, just tell me how to do benzo detox at home. Yeah,
0: I'm like, man. You guys, nah. nah I always tell nah. people um, we're <laughs> big about. advocates for medically assisted detoxes on Sober's Dope. And we're big advocates of rehab on Sober's Dope. And the same thing with you. I know it's the best way. I mean, look, do it. If you're really serious. What I tell people You really No Because no, that's judgmental Because they could be serious Without going to a, um, An extreme like that But If you want to Increase chances of success And really You want it to be As healthy For you to process Try to get professional help That's what I, I always say Just try To consider yeah. it And don't worry So much about What people may think Or hiding it Just do what you have to do Now I wanted to ask A quick question Why are some people Dying off of fentanyl Some people are not So you have someone who could be taking it every day and be fine and someone like the actor Michael K. Williams who probably was trying to do recreational cocaine gets a bad hit and then goes into cardiac arrest and dies. Like,
1: Yeah, it's, it's opioid naivete. Opiate naive or a lack of tolerance basically is that uh, that's really it it's just like there's people who use fent every day and it's like bro they could take a dose that's going to kill any average person who tries to take it so uh you just you get a dependency and then it's you know you have a physical tolerance basically and that's like that sets it apart so that's why we're seeing the issue with people using something You know, uh, and they and they pass away, Um, and that doesn't mean that they used for the first time though, and that you know, like that's the thing is that that people are dictating that now because maybe they they have a belief about their loved one and they don't want that to be part of their story is that they willingly took something and the thing is is that there are scenarios to where yeah you you do some coke and you think that it's a stimulant and then it has an opioid so those people are seeking out a stimulant and they probably have a stimulant dependency if they're doing it regularly Mm. so that's the issue is that they have a stimulant dependency but they do not have an opioid dependency and so they use it and it's like yo you're out that's that's it so Uh, it it really just has to do with that some people can just, you know, take un- ungodly amounts of substances. That's definitely my story, to where I would just, you know, consume such massive amounts, and it was because your body, you, you get used to it. You know what I mean? So yeah, used to it. That, that's what it is. I mean, there's definitely other scenarios to where. You know if someone has some sort of issues with their hearts and you know maybe a smaller dose could could cause them to lose their life because they already have cardiac issues they already have issues with their breathing with with the respiratory system they already you know there's all these different things that can come into play but i i would say it's it's really just because the people who do it every day They're doing it every day. So they got that, you know, they got that dependency. They got that tolerance. Right.
0: Right. I read somewhere in an article, I don't know if it was fake news or whatever, but they said um, that uh, on vacation, I think it was the, the family rented a vacation home and it was fentanyl residue and it killed one of the kids or something like that. Did you, did you have, is, is that I possible? That, yeah. that,
1: I mean, the thing is, is like, uh, when it comes to passive exposure, you have to get it into your orifice. So a kid could lick, a, 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 a utensil or a plate that had mm. fentanyl in it. That's, that's oh, totally, that's wow. totally a thing. You have to ingest it though. Passive exposure it. is not a thing. Like, uh, according to toxicologists, you could throw fentanyl in the damn air right. and you're not going to OT from it because it has okay. a low vapor point it doesn't it doesn't hover in the air right. apparently you could literally throw it up there's even there's proposed i don't know if this is a real study but you know there's the wind tunnel uh, theory or i don't really know what's labeled as but basically claiming that you would have to be in a wind tunnel with I think like pounds and pounds and pounds distributed over the span of two hours in order for it to reach a therapeutic dose. So you'd have to wow. be in a wind, a wind tunnel with them siphoning in fentanyl for it to reach a therapeutic dose. Now, when you look at uh, patches, transdermal patches, those take like 12 hours to fully like reach their potential. So like they spent tons of money on formulating that to actually work. So we're not like, Passively touching it. Not so what's doing.
0: the most fatal way you can ingest it? Like what's the the worst? Like how do how are people in, ingesting or taking fentanyl? I don't even know. Like is it I mean, pills? They're,
1: they're they're swallowing a pill. They're smoking or rather vaping rather a, a, a pill by Smoking it off foil, so you you know you put it on top of foil and you light the foil under it. Oh, uh, you, you know, and then there's people using intravenously, which is going to be the most dangerous mode mode of administration because of all the other things also associated with it, as far as bloodborne illnesses, as far as the onset, the quick onset of that is going yeah. to be far more profound you could say that the onset of smoking is really quick as well but the thing is is that or vaping you kind of denature it to a certain degree when you're applying heat like that's where the idea that you can smoke weed and od on it is being debunked is that you Weed is, cannabis is burned at a temperature that is way higher than fentanyl can withstand. Now, uh, you know, so basically a lot of those claims are now being refuted and, and proven to be false. I don't know that. I would assume that if you vaped it, that somehow that would work. But now people are refuting that. So the main thing is just like, I, th- I would say the most common to the average person obviously is going to be just putting it in their mouth. That's that's like okay. the average person they're not going to go they're not going to pull out a needle they're not gonna necessarily they may i don't think they're gonna smoke it for or you know hit it off some foil for the first time it's really just you're putting it in your mouth you know and okay. you're swallowing
0: and most of the cases i read like with the comedians that group of comedians last year that that they they they, they was taking party cocaine and they were sniffing it and it was stopping they all three or four of them died in the set you had groups of people dying that you could see they bought a bad batch it was you know, may have made a circuit, you know, so you might have two people on this side of town, four people over here, 12 people over here. So it's like, don't you know, you just have to, I guess, carry test strips to test your cocaine, I guess. Right. It's, yeah. Yeah. You have okay. to test
1: any. It, the thing is, is people are assuming because it's a stimulant that there's not going to be anything in there. A lot of pe- harm reductionists are like refuting or kind of like refuting the idea that it could be in stimulants. I don't think that's a good policy. I think that it's really just like you test any powder and pill. Right, that is you right test things. There we go. You can't test things that aren't water soluble. So you can't okay. test, you can't take a bud of some cannabis and put it in some water. Like that's not, you know, technically if there was a fence on there, it would, you know, dissolve into the water. But the thing is, like I said, those have been, a lot of those claims have been refuted.
0: Even uh, the weed thing kind of, now? Because they said ma- it's in it marijuana now? That's been refuted?
1: That's that's now currently being refuted. And the fact that, again, you, it completely denatures, like it, it ruins it once you burn it. So. Okay. You know, when, when you burn it, it's just like that's not when people are smoking it, they're putting it on foil and the heat is applied to the foil. And there's a barrier between that to where, you know, applying a direct flame is a totally different issue. Now, what I speculated was when you burn a joint. All of the, the, the output you're getting isn't just from the ember. It's also simultaneously vaporizing the cannabis that is not yet lit. So wow. I was starting to think, I thought to myself, oh, well, it could vape that. Now it could vape the fentanyl. If it's the ember is next to it, it could potentially vape it. And from what I'm hearing, it would still be denatured when you look at the heat of an ember on a joint or the heat that's applied when you were to light a bowl or something. So the thing is, is that there there's yet to be any of these claims substantiated and Mm -hmm. that they're they're kind of they're they're reading of the same type of passive exposure propaganda that's being perpetuated by law enforcement to where it's always a friend of my friend's daughter the like it's it's never been actively proven according to my knowledge and the thing is is that you know basically because it hasn't actively been you know proven and substantiated that just it 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 honestly just kind of illegitimizes it It becomes sort of like a myth and uh you know the thing is is like i said i'll shut up and say i'm wrong if it's like actively you know proven you know so the, the thing is is like again it just it, it's kind of lumped into this whole thing and then you could say, well why would anyone do it? I think in the only scenario that would happen is that uh, accidental uh, cross-contamination to where right. someone uses a surface or a scale you know again but uh, th- this is the blunt truth and then I' I'll, I'll, I'll end there with this is that no one wants to admit that they did fentanyl okay <laughs> so a lot of people are doing fentanyl. Overdosing, and then saying that they just smoked weed that was laced. I'm sorry, oh, that's that's a hundred percent, bro. That's, and I'm not gonna say wow. uh, across the board, but bro, that's a hundred percent happening, dude. Think about that's all deep. we've touched on. Think yeah. about the stigma. Think about the, the idea secrecy. that you only do it on accident. You do it. You have this image that you want to uphold. Your family is terrified, rightfully so. You're gonna go, hey, yeah, I took a fucking fake perk. No, you're going to say, oh, yeah. dude, I just hit some weed. Like, maybe yeah. you were also smoking weed. Yeah. You know, you, you did hit some weed, yeah. but the weed didn't
0: without
1: like, so that it's is It's that, that shame.
0: Is, it backfires on us in society when we yes. add that added shame and stigma and stuff. That's why I tell people they have to be careful with judging because it, people are never going to be honest, going to be honest if we're judging them. And if they feel afraid, See, I would be afraid to tell you for that. Yeah, you, know, you know, you going to try to minimize it like. Yo, I wasn't like <laughs> Where I was coming up It was crack that we would have been It would have been crack that we would Nobody yeah. would ever yeah. want to admit They were do a crack It was such a bad stigma You you know what I mean? Yeah Is crack still a thing? I haven't heard from crack. Is it still Where's <laughs> crack at?
1: Crack's still a thing, man. It's just, the thing is, is like because the nature of crack and because it's by nature and by definition is, you know, cut cocaine, like Mm -hmm. I just, I don't think it's as prominent when we, you know, when it comes to people, uh, you know, smoking crack and then ODing on fentanyl. I'm pretty sure that's, that's happened, you know, but again, you're, you're lighting it on fire, actively lighting it on fire, unless you're, and most people aren't, aren't hitting it off foil. They're hitting it off a stem with with a chore boy in it. So, the thing is, is you know, and I'm, I'm glad you touched on that because that this is now the new stigma is fentanyl. It, it's it, a, yeah, you know, it's a new crack. And the thing is, is it's affecting all cultures and subcultures, whereas crack was was projected as a black drug that you know that was you know like just it was totally related to that and then even when we look i'm not going to go too far into this but then we look at the distribution and the real ties to the government getting it out within certain communities it was very intentional so that's where i think a lot of people get into the conspiracy with fentanyl and stuff but the truth of the matter is is like you know people seek it out bro people want it if i was using I would totally be seeking out fentanyl, bro. Uh, No question. Okay. Yes. I I did pharmaceutical fentanyl when I was using. I only got it one time. And I was like, bro, this is the best shit ever. Like, you know, and the thing is, is like, That's the type of communication I think is important is to not go out and say, oh, this is the best shit ever, but go out and say, hey, this is something that makes you feel a certain type of way. And here's the risk with it. This is what this could potentially do to you. So when I was using that, I knew because the person who provided it to me was like, hey, yo, if you go hard with this, you're not going to survive, bro. Like I Mm. I had what was was a a, uh, sublingual swab and it it looked like a Q-tip. And you you put it under your tongue and just swipe it under there. And it tastes like bubble gum. It was very it was pretty ominous, just the flavoring of it. Uh, and, and the person who gave it to me told me right out of the gate, hey, this is what this is going to do to you. If you use too much of this, you will die. And, you know, and so I went into it with the awareness that if I use too much of it, I would die. And when I tried it, I was like, oh, I can tell. I knew it. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is hella strong. So, you know, the thing is, is, you know, people are just kind of left to their own devices to, you know, go against authority. And then they, they have a euphoric feeling and they're like, oh, this is, this is great. And then it just, it kind of invalidates all of the scary things they've heard because they're like, ah, nah, I don't care. I'll make that trade-off. So that's why it goes back to what I was saying earlier in the importance of just the broad spectrum of, of, of things that it does is talk about the what it can do, talk about the application, and then talk about the truth of what the harm that it can cause, you know? And so I don't know how i Got into that, but
0: no, nah, that was good. Cool. Lastly, what's up with trank man? Is it true that's knocking people feet off and their hands are falling? <laughs> the media be making this sound crazy. The people, the arms are falling off, and all of that is corrosive. Yeah.
1: Abscesses are a thing with anyone who's using, you know, uh, intravenously. Uh, i According to what I've gathered, there's something there's something about the chemical composition of these formulations or these concoctions that are making people more are, are just making it more likely for there to be uh, you know basically I think cell death if I'm not wrong yeah. think, uh, in conjunction with uh, you know you're basically you get these infections and then uh, I, I can't think of the word right now but it's basically like a flesh e- eating yeah type or flesh thing. eating right, right. But, uh, I mean look the thing is is like I, I've had people reach out to me on social media who have experienced these things. I think that it's a real thing. What I'm not with is the whole "oh, these are these are zombies." Like, oh, bro, like, right. get out the of here with that. Sh- like, yeah, that I don't fuck with that, but. It's yeah, like it's it is objectively causing abscesses and and you know people to potentially lose limbs and to have huge holes in their body and all of that, which you know, which is a real thing. And then, you know, depending on the uh, the needle that they're using, you have that, and then you're using a a needle with bacteria in it. You're you're re you know, you're putting you're continuing to infect it basically so yeah. uh that's a real thing i you know I, I, as i said i'm not that informed when it comes to that i i really i think that you know when it comes to xylazine the the, the real thing that is you know concerning is the fact that it uh that that naloxone or narcan doesn't work on that but the wow, thing is Oh
0: that's crazy that i didn't know that it's
1: not an opioid so it, it's an analog of clonidine which is prescribed as a blood pressure medication okay and then, uh you know and and it's used in veterinary medicine xylazine is used in veterinary medicine uh but you still administer naloxone if someone is unresponsive and you do sternum rubs on them you try to get a response from them and they're not responsive it doesn't matter if you know that they od'd or not narcan is not going to hurt them so you give them naloxone and it can hit the, it can block off, it'll take over that opioid receptor, block off the one that was binded to it, and that is still going to help. And then that that can help holding the person off a little bit until emergency services get there and so people need to learn how to do rescue breathing that is what's recommended within the harm reduction communities is that you do rescue breaths you can get a a mouth guard so you don't have to put your mouth on someone else's you can get those from endoverdose.net you can you know get all these tools to where you're, you're, you're basically prepping someone to be received by EMS to where they can then there are medications that they can implement that will combat the xylazine so when I say that it doesn't work like narcan or naloxone doesn't work on xylazine i'm not discouraging using naloxone use naloxone across the board because it's going you know it's going to help but you don't it's just if someone is overdosing due to the combination of xylazine and an opioid or an anal or an analog of an opioid they're you know like if that's actually happening you know there's only so much you can do and that is administer naloxone and do rescue breaths basically
0: right oh man you dropped it today and um i wanted you to shout out the place you're working at what name of them again um the people over there that you was helping
1: i I have a a partnership and a collaboration with uh infinite recovery based out of texas and uh you know we we got treatment centers all throughout texas and uh aftercare You know, complete continuum of care. So we got not only IOP, but PHP, which is partial hospitalization, sober living, detox, inpatient, all throughout Texas. So, you know, we have there's multiple locations and it's accessible. They take most major insurance, you know, and so it's and and I and I actually stand behind them. You know, I'm personally acquainted with the owners and I have a rapport with them. And that's why I even co-sign them because I, you know, treatment is a it's a it's a very it's the Wild West when it comes to trying to figure it out and you know there are unethical treatment centers and you know a lot of sketchy shit going on so body
0: brokering to, and stuff yeah, That we're against it. that that's why i wanted you to shout them out it's the first time we ever shouted out anyone on sober is dope because i know you you're buying it and i know they have to be legit because there's too many creeps out there and it doesn't help us when we're trying to help people you know they go to places and have bad experiences, um, oh, horrifying yeah. experiences. So um, what's their name again?
1: Infinite Recovery. Infinite
0: Recovery. In- Shout out in- to Infinite, Infinite Recovery in yeah. Texas. So if you're listening and you're out there and you're in Texas, um, give them guys a ring. Um, hit up um, Macaulay Sexton and that's what's up. What's new with you? Like what's for, what's next for you? You're doing that. You have, you, you have the TikTok. You have all of this stuff going on. We got what, what's next for... Big Mister Sexton.
1: So, next for me is just continuing to advocate for person-first language. Ultimately, a shift when it comes to a lot of the ways of thinking that we have out there. And I'm going to do that through advocacy, through public speaking, through stuff like this. Uh, some other things that I'm that I got working on. I'm, I'm not. I will, I will articulate to you not on camera because okay. I I fully believe that I don't want to just let anyone in because right. you got to guard when you when you're when you're growing and manifesting things you got to be careful of who you tell those things you know Absolutely. who you tell that
0: stuff to right uh,
1: you know but but ultimately you know. I do social media management, direction, marketing. Um, so I'm, you know, I have opportunities coming up with, with different, uh, brands and stuff like that and it's really just about like my whole thing bro is like i set my life up to where i can have just an emphasis on self-care self-love my wow. recovery i have i still do clubhouse uh so i, I have a meeting every thursday at 4:30 central called alternative recovery and that is a community that i've built based on just alternative recovery we got people wow. do any type of recovery. We have people who are doing things that other members can't do. We have people who their their substance of choice is something that the other person is utilizing in their recovery. So that is what I'm all about. I like like to hear original stuff. I like to hear new cutting edge stuff. I seek it out. I'm a nerd for recovery. I like that reading about it and figuring out like what i can bring in and how i can adjust but it's just bro it's just going up from here I, and the thing is, is it's all based on my recovery and my mental health and so anything that i do bro i'm like i i go into it and i set the stage to where any collaborator anyone i'm partnering with anything i'm doing they i let them in i show hey this is where I'm at. This is what I do. I will not compromise on these things. I will not be taken advantage of. I, you know, I know my worth now, which took a long time. And, you know, I I just I appreciate people like you and that that I have you as a friend because, you know, I you you already had when I first started talking to you, you know, I feel like you you were already honoring me. And, bro, shit has changed since we talked last time. I
0: know, I know.
1: Drastically. I'm a different like it's so cool how recovery can just you can continue to just peel apart these layers and just see more and more good shit and 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 more challenges more things hey i need to address this i need to look at this so it's just it's going up from here bro like for me it's just about stability and creativity and just feeling good about what you're doing and 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 the opportunities you have you take the ones that are for you and you leave the rest like that is that is where i'm at and it's been a long time coming coming and it's the catalyst was suffering
0: Right, and yeah. for people who don't know, this is a uh, this is important. You are a person in recovery. How many years, and what was your drug of choice, and how many years are you um, clean and sober?
1: Yeah, so uh, my substances of choice were benzodiazepines and opiates. So, okay. uh, you know, and I've been in recovery for nine going on ten years. Yeah,
0: boy, that's uh, what I'm talking about, and this is why we say sober is dope and like, everything because look at you right now, bro. Like you like come on, man, like you're just amazing. You're living this life. You're thriving. You're helping people. You look amazing. You're healthy. You have all of these ideas. If I looked at you, I would have never thought you had any issue at all. Right. So it's amazing how far our recovery could take us into our life. So don't give up if you're out there. Don't give up. You know, um, I'm proud of you, brother. Uh, It's been a minute and um, I want you to come back on more often. And if it's any and another thing, if it's anything that we need, like any news flashes or anything, let us know. We want to work more with um, your your recovery um, team and everything that you got going on. And um, in closing, what I will always want to do, and this is important, any um, um, advice for anyone that's in early recovery from drug misuse and um, any advice for they may be struggling with it. They they don't know how to live a normal life. They don't know what to do. Do you have any part and words for them?
1: Oh, yeah. All right. So you just <laughs> you set me up with that one, bro. I got All All right. So first of all, my focus is on practice and repetition. If you are feeling like you are just completely in over your head with all these recovery options, find something that you resonate with, do it repetitively. You can change the way that you think. You can literally create new neural pathways in your brain. You do not have to be in a state of perpetual suffering and craving for the rest of your life. You do not have to be at battle for the rest of your life. Recovery is a reprieve. In my opinion and experience, it's a reprieve. You can get relief. You don't have to be constantly just in this state of fighting. For me, I needed to get rid of the fights and get into the love of self and learn that I don't need to be rigid. At first, it has its application because we're changing our way of thinking and we have to change our association. But just to put it to reduce it down, you know, to to a to a nice reduction is, uh, you know, be nice to yourself and learn if you don't already learn to love yourself, but be nice to yourself and don't bring in this mentality of punishing yourself because a lot of us do that. We feel like we messed up for so many years that we just got to, you know, just put our heads down. And like, I get that. Look, if, if you want that grind mentality, that's fine. I had that too. But for me, it brought me to a place in recovery to where I did not, feel good and I was it was not sustainable. So the name of the game is sustainability and love yourself because you you're not just an addict. You're you're there's so much more to you. If you're if you've experienced this, that is just an aspect of your existence and you can actually address it and recover and be in a position to where like Pop gave me the affirmation. We become fully actualized versions of ourselves. If we put in that effort and we're you can put yourself in a better position than you ever were prior to ever touching a substance, not back to how you were before, because that sucked for me. I'm in a better position now and it's all because of of recovery. That sounded so like (laughs)
0: like I love it. I love it. I love it. You describe post-traumatic growth. You could become better than you were prior to the trauma of the drugs. Right. I love that. Well, friends and family, Sober is Dope Universe, that's a wrap for our episode with the amazing Macaulay Sexton. We love you all. Don't give up. Um, Macaulay has nine years. I have 10. We, We have proof and a concept that recovery does work in our lives. So reach out to us. Stay connected. Connection is key. Stay connected. Love yourself, and we'll catch you on the other side. Peace and love, family. God bless you all.